Welcome to episode 68 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. I'm Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. Hoping you're all staying well and safe and are doing okay as many of us continue dealing with the rolling lockdowns across Australia and New Zealand. This week is our In The News episode and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity experts Bradley Singh and Garrett O'Hara and we'll be exploring how content delivery networks have caused some major outages for high profile websites. We'll also look into why we are getting a lot of strange missed calls lately and how to avoid the flu bot. We'll dig into how cyber crime gangs are trying to actively recruit malicious insiders. And we'll finish up by covering the latest high alert message sent by the ACSC regarding the vulnerability affecting BlackBerry's QNX RTOS. Brad, let's kick things off by taking a look at the recent outages suffered by some of the largest websites in the world and what's caused them. Certainly, Dan. It's uh, been quite a big few weeks in terms of disruption. Now, I'm sure, to your point, a lot of us are locked down across Australia, probably more than half the population at the moment. And um, it's no wonder some of our most popular websites that we like to visit have, have also been down. Um, it's probably good to clarify what a CDN is is for everyone. So, content to delivery network. Um, they really started to become, I guess, more popular over the past 10 years. But the idea is that effectively, Instead of hosting a website at one point on a web server, you effectively mirror that, that content on different web servers around the world. So if you're connecting from Australia, you connect to the local Asia-Pacific infrastructure, vice versa around the world. There's been a growing dependence on these providers uh, for a lot of, I guess, large websites we access. So there was two outages or, I guess, two large points of disruption. One was Fastly, and this was due to a software bug where apparently one customer changed a setting and it brought down their entire platform or at least... To this part of the world and so websites such as amazon reddit paypal twitch spotify um, ticketmaster shopify um, some pretty um, kind of big names were you know, kind of kind of suffered disruption from it and then about two weeks later akami which has been a, another cdn provider which is very well known in the industry they suffered a ddos so we're talking three of the big four banks uh, we're talking australia post american airlines etc so I'm not sure if the hackers watched the disruption caused by the software bug and then thought, hey, let's do a DDoS against another provider. Maybe they were paying attention. But um, yeah, just high levels of disruption and I guess makes us wonder about the resilience and kind of, you know, do we store all eggs in one basket? Yeah, it's such a it's an interesting comment, isn't it, on how how the world works today. Um, and even outside of CDNs, I would say some of the kind of larger hosted platforms for IAS uh, or platform as a service or any of those kind of things um, definitely serve as a potential single point of failure. I think there wasn't there an example of AWS many years ago where it went down and one of the affected organizations was uh, they did sort of Wi-Fi light bulbs. So you had people sitting in the dark with no idea that the reason they couldn't turn the light switch on was that um, you know, literally thousands of kilometers away, somebody had done the wrong thing in a data center. Um, it's yeah, it's one of those things, and isn't it interesting? Also, I mean, one of the kind of use cases for CDNs is is resilience, right? It's that idea of kind of multiple endpoints and local PO, um, points of uh, presence um, for you know speed of delivery, but also resilience. And then yeah, to your point, Brad, like when they go, it's a it is a seismic uh, impact. And why do you think there might be you know these things being targeted? Is it is is it just to create that disruption and you know that that sense, or is there something more that uh, that is happening behind the scenes as well? 
Yeah, I mean, it depends on who the who the attackers are. I think with a lot of these things, and and you know, and you know, to Brad's point, sometimes it's actually not attackers at all. And in our industry, I think we often forget that you know, we're you know, the, the A of the CIA triad is actually just availability. And sometimes it's uh, you know, a technician does the wrong thing. We've seen that here locally, where you know, um, mobile providers they've had uh, technicians arrive into one of the exchanges and fat finger something. And next thing you know, like the Eastern seaboard is down and FPOS isn't working. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, back to the old school technical issues that are, I would say, part of cyber resilience, maybe less mm-hmm. so the security side of things. But um, yeah, then in terms of motives, I, I suppose it, it just depends on who the attackers really are. I, I think there's kind of two sides to it, right? So, I mean, in the first one, software glitch, you know, great example of just kind of resilience in the platform and, and underpinning where exactly risk should be, but in the realms of a DDoS, I almost think it may be collateral damage, um, to say the least. Like it could be one customer or a set of customers using these services targeted by a group of threat actors out there. Like we saw sustained attacks against Sony from certain groups on 4chan for months and months and months. That platform was down. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's some type of coordination and you know maybe as a collateral damage, like all these other services are going down as well, because it's almost too hard to hit these companies at at a lower level, like you might as well hit them higher up on the chain where, yeah, they can't really even defend themselves. But I think this has been a big wake-up call for the industry. And I think if anything, it'll probably bring more providers, more options, uh, more plan Bs. That's the only thing I can think of that can come of this. Oh, I was just going to say really interesting point there. You know, that, that's that's a, it's such an important uh, thing to, to mention is that collateral uh, damage. Happened so often in cybersecurity, and and you might not be the target, but you're the way to somebody else. You just happen to <laughs> you happen to get in the way, so your systems get popped, nailed, mostly because you can help get access to you know uh, your stepping stone to some other organization. And um, but yeah, I think it's a really important perspective. You know that idea of going after those larger platforms and providers, and it doesn't matter that it's going to affect tens or hundreds of other organizations if you've got a target in mind and here i'm thinking state nation maybe more than potentially you know kind of financially mm-hmm. driven stuff but uh will will they really care like if they really want to go after a particular organization for whatever reason do, i mean do they really care that it's it's going to you know affect tens or hundreds of other organizations i mean at some level they probably will but maybe less than we'd like them to <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, thanks for uh, exploring that and uh, certainly uh, teaching me something about uh, CDNs and and, uh, our reliance on them. Um, Lately, um, I've certainly been getting a lot of missed calls. Um, It's just been, my phone's been going off both on my mobile and even at home, like just the phone is constantly ringing from the very strange numbers that um, aren't necessarily leaving messages. But uh, we've now learned that this is uh, happening pretty broadly. And um, and there's a notion of a a flu bot, um, which is a, a malware that's going around as part of this. Brad, what's happening here? Why are we getting all of these strange calls all of a sudden? Um, look, definitely in terms of, uh, I guess, kind of since the pandemic, uh, I think all of us stuck at home. I think a lot of us have suffered or, or kind of felt that barrage of fake text messages. Um, thankfully, it looks like we, we do have a name now to, to your point. So it appears to be a campaign by the name of Flubot. Um, interestingly enough, in kind of, I guess, the prime examples of it, what it is, it's effectively a barrage of text messages linking to a website, which usually has a funny name, like it'll be kind of some randomly kind of generated thing, but kind of two English things together. The idea is if you click on the link, it then infects you with basically a remote access tool effectively. Now, it only apparently at this stage affects Android users, so a bit of a PSA out there, (laughs) I guess any Android listeners. 
Um, but it's still being sent to iOS devices. Like I use an iPhone and my last 10 text messages are from Fluebot as a, as a personal example. So something definitely to be, to be worried about. And aside from that, um, to, to your point, Dan, you've also got these missed call scams, which um, are in, in great prevalence as well. So I think side by side, it just it's not giving people much of a reason to pick up their phone. It, it's probably worth uh, pointing out that it is uh, for Android phones that have been uh, sort of set up for sideloading, and um, which I suspect is a fairly small number of folks out there. So before everybody kind of <laughs> freaks out, maybe that they've got flu bot. Um, you know, the the thing to think about is if you've set sideloading on, then you know potentially you're you're vulnerable to this. But if you haven't, then you're probably in a good position. Still, always good to check, right? But um, yeah, maybe don't don't freak out and uh, throw the phone in the toilet and go ahead and buy a new one just just yet. Definitely worth uh, worth checking. Interesting point though, isn't it around um, the value of locking down an ecosystem? Um, and I know you know iPhone is held up as the the sort of gold standard uh, for you know secure, safe uh, equivalent of a store. And I know Android tends to be seen as a little bit more of a a wild west, even in the store, you know, they, they certainly do check, but I think um, it sounds like Apple is more, more strict in terms of the apps that they let into their store. So yeah, definitely worth pointing that out as well. And how does the phone really actually get infected there, Brad? Like, so you, you're clicking on, on a link to what, to check your voicemail. Is that what's happening? Yeah. It, well, it's, it's a fake text message and mm-hmm. Effectively comes in, it just goes to a link. It says, "Hey, click on this link." It's almost like basically going to a GitHub thing where it automatically installs. I I didn't know Gar that it actually needed sideload permissions or anything. I thought it was more like you, you clicked on it and then it popped up asking for permissions. You then hit accept. I didn't realize it needed a high level of permission. Um, but to my knowledge, it's just yeah, a super common kind of vector, like basically like a phishing link, if you will, which then downloads a remote tool. Um, but I would also suggest that um, this is something which is kind of uncom like sorry, it's, it's something which is, is 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 been common over the past few years, and I think we're just starting to see an increase of it. And to Gar's point, it would be interesting to see if Google ever go to the point where they start restricting the 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 Android store, the Play Store, to the point of Apple, just because of the security risks involved with it. And we think about this when we talk about things like APIs and opening everything everything for you know different. Um, um, actors to use, but these things can also be obviously used maliciously. And I bet you there's probably hundreds of fake banking apps uh, impersonating Australia, Australian brands on the, on the Google Play Store right now. And at least I know from an iOS perspective, then you know, I'm not going to have that same risk. And is there any way that our listeners might uh, be able to check if they have been infected by this and uh, um, what can they do about it? I think the recommendation is there's a couple of things here in terms of what they're trying to act. So you can download um, uh, quite a few different antivirus softwares for your phone. I think um, Telstra make a few different recommendations on their website. Um, outside of that, uh, allegedly Telstra and potentially Vodafone as well, they're trying to combat it at a higher level. So they're looking at using machine learning and AI rules to effectively start looking at patterns to basically stop these spammy or scam messages. But I guess it'll be to, to kind of what end and... Yeah, realistically, maybe something only machine learning and AI can solve again. And it comes back to that conversation of how do we deal with the scale of something when the barrage of it is just so seemingly constant. Yeah, I like the idea of the, the pattern recognition and that machine learning approach. Um, so I'm an Android user. Um, and one of the things I like about the, the phone that I have is that uh, if I get an SMS or a phone call, uh, the Google 
kicks in and kind of tells me, hey, this is a suspected spammer. Um, so even though it's an SMS or a phone call, I get a red banner visual notification saying, hey, like you probably don't want to either answer this or uh, respond in any way to to this SMS. So, um, you know, I think the, the providers, Google and Apple are kind of approaching things in different ways, but I definitely agree with it being something that probably needs to happen further back because there's absolutely no way, you know, individuals are going to know whether something is a, a real SMS or not, as the case may be. So I think, you know, the, the providers, the telecoms providers, and then the uh, mobile providers, I think, working in conjunction um, and crowdsourcing, you know, I think having users report things as spam on their phones is important because that's what the uh, uh, mobile providers then use to, uh, you know, essentially crowdsource their known bad list of spammers. Okay, interesting. Well, like you said, Brad, that um, for more information, uh, search Flubot on the Telstra website, um, and they've got plenty of information there to uh, to help anybody out. Um, moving on to the next story, one that is, is quite disturbing in many ways. We all know in security the high risk that a, a malicious insider presents. Um, they're very hard to, to stop. That's, um, a lot of things can go wrong when you've got somebody inside the four walls of your organization that is looking to do the wrong thing and have might have access to, to systems and be able to bring things down or create, wreak havoc. And with that, a new a cyber gang has actually been on the hunt to actually recruit these malicious insiders to actually try to get them and pay them money in order to then for them to be able to install the Lockbit 2.0 ransomware um, inside their own organizations. Brad, what is going on here? Yeah, this is um, kind of, I've been reading a few different like spy novels and watching some old spy movies recently and it kind of reminds me of that double agent kind of vibe, right, where they're trying to get an asset inside. But I think the reality here is that the value dollar of successful ransomware attacks is significantly increased. And we're looking at industries targeted, which, you know, have healthcare workers, frontline workers, um, workers in factories, as an example, you know, potentially not the, not the most high paid workers. Uh, maybe it's somebody in an Amazon warehouse, as an example, in the States. Um, for them to then potentially be offered a large sum of money to plug a USB device into a computer at work or a terminal for a seemingly such a small exercise, yeah, it could, could be, be a big payday for that individual. I mean, obviously, they'd probably get caught and the real risk there is actually probably on that user. But I think we're naive to think that people won't start doing things like this, you know, especially if they are suffering economic hardship. I, I think back on, you know, we had Jenny Radcliffe on the show well, it's a couple of months ago now, you know, and her uh, her conversations and things she talks about in terms of physical access to organizations, you know, the the effort that somebody like her has to go to to get in there to plug, to your point, Brad, a, a USB drive into a server somewhere or a machine. Um, isn't this just like Occam's razor almost? This is just such an elegant approach from an attack perspective. <laughs> Pay some money to somebody who can just walk through the doors and do it without you having to even try um like it's it's phenomenally simple and i'm kind of amazed it doesn't happen more often um especially if there's an element of deniability I'm, I'm sort of trying to think through how that goes with cctv and you know the amount of tracking that would be involved um like do you get to the point where if it was deniable and the money was good enough yeah um, it's horrible to say but i think you know to many people that's a, a pretty attractive prospect to make some nice money especially if it's in the millions I mean, if you could do it anonymously and like, 
again, I think it would be naive to think that you, you can't develop technology to a point where you can do this fairly repeatedly. Like we, we've seen this already, like the whole, um, the beauty of the ransomware industry, if you will, if you could say it like that, is that it's managed to scale and, and bring in large uh, amounts of money repeatedly. Um, if you could do it in such a way, which, you know, guaranteed little to no risk to the to the end user. And even then, it doesn't have to be the, the, the employee. It could be the employee's brother, sister, sibling, you know, parent, family member. Like there's so many other different areas of um, risk. Um, and even from that aspect, like, you know, you could just, I still think it'd be so easy to, to uh, dress up as a cleaner and walk into nearly any building. Like, I, I think there's a huge problem with the, with the premise of that insider and kind of physical security aspect and something we've probably not thought too much about since we've been, um, you know, stuck at home. And the other thing is, you know, you talk about the financial incentives, um, and then there's the you know the rubber hose uh, cyber cyber attacks, which is um, you know, hey, Mister Employee, uh, we need you to plug this in, and if you don't, um, you know, here's here's what happens to your to you or your family, like that threat of violence, and uh, you know, I suspect, I know it seems like the stuff that Jason Bourne moves or whatever, but in reality, like if the prize was big enough and you really wanted to get into an organization badly enough, um, and you were the given that, you know, so many of these folks are, they're criminal organizations, like, why wouldn't you use traditional blackmail approaches, you know, violence or, you know, the photos of you doing the wrong thing with somebody in a motel or whatever. Um, but it wouldn't always have to be, you know, here's money, but, you know, the, the opposite side, you know, uh, threat of violence or, or blackmail. And that's that real targeted hacking that we're talking about, right? Where you're going after an individual, you're, you're doing like a docs trying to figure out where they live. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's, and that's, that's scary and that's horrible, right? And, a lot of that stuff, I think, unfortunately, does happen, and, and probably doesn't. Well, it probably isn't prosecuted or even even investigated enough because it just kind of happens behind closed doors. And it also happens, I think, a lot in marginalised communities, which, which again, a lot of people would have no privy to. It's definitely a very scary thought, right? And this can be happening. And um, I guess from a security and protection point of view for organisations. I'm assuming, though, that with so much monitoring and, you know, network security and everything else that's available today, that often the person would be known who's actually, you know, perpetrated that act and actually in installed that ransomware. Is that the case or am I thinking that um, our surveillance is, uh, is maybe better than what it might be? I think you're right, though. I think people will catch up. But I think the problem also is that so many people are willing to live stream their illegal activities on TikTok and different social media. So, like, I think, yes, people are going to get caught, but I don't think it actually really stops it from happening, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I'm not sure what you feel, Gar. Well, I mean, my thoughts are that the number one control in cybersecurity is physical. Like, that's, that's where everything starts. And if you've got an employee that's walking through the doors you are so far ahead of the game in terms of being able to potentially compromise uh, an organization. Um, and you're right, Dan, like there's, there's a bunch of things in most organizations that will be looking for, you know, uh, USB ports being used, what's being accessed. Like, yes, 100% there's technical controls, but um, if you're at the point where you've got the money or the threat of violence to get an employee to kind of comply with a request to go do this stuff, then you're probably the kind of, uh, organization in the background that's got the the chops to build something that if you plug the USB drive in, it's going to do whatever it needs to and, and away you go. So um, like physical security, you know, we, we love talking about technology and that's kind of, you know, it's interesting and it's cool and, and uh, you know, lots of bells and whistles, but actually sometimes a huge fence and a gate and a boom, you know, boom gates on the way in and good turnstiles, like 
that's where it all starts. And if, if that falls down because you're able to pay somebody or threaten them, yeah, you're, you're so far ahead of, um, yeah, um, you, you know, trying to do remote tax or, you know, drive-bys or click on links and all that stuff, which works, but just got a um, comparatively lower success rate, I suspect. I think the uh, the financial, you know, incentive there, um, you know, though you've got to wonder whether these uh these criminal gangs then actually hold up their end of the bargain, right? And um, so and actually make the payment to the person and you know give them their their ten percent cut or whatever it might be as their uh, as their fee. It's uh, it's it's a very you know dangerous and, and slippery slope that uh, these people are on, and but it's a scary thought to think that you know people could be you know walking into into organized organizations and creating wreaking this havoc um, based on the fact that you know somebody is actually you know offering that incentive um, or as you say even worse gar that you know they've got a, a, a physical threat to them or their family that um that's it's just a terrible way to think I know we're kind of wrapping this story up but wasn't there one with Tesla uh, like a year ago am I dreaming wasn't there a Tesla employee that they tried to compromise for this kind of stuff and luckily they went to the authorities but they were getting they were getting strong arms into, um, I can't remember what it was. I don't know if it was DLP. I'm after bringing up a story that I can only vaguely remember, but I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, there was a, a case where Tesla, so, you know, as the listeners listen to this, it's worth Googling, um, you know, Tesla Insider, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. And it might've been one of our state nation friends who were having a go um, about a year ago from memory. So like there is form for this stuff. It's not the first time. Cool. And the last story that we were going to cover today um, is the latest um, high alert status from the ACSC, um, which is around a vulnerability affecting BlackBerry QNX RTOS. Brad, can you tell us what this is? Yes. What is BlackBerry QNX RTOS? <laughs> um, I think I had the same thought. And I'm sure everybody who received the alert did as well. Um, I want to be correct in terms of the versions for this one. So, Gar, thank you for the correction in terms of the, the Android story earlier and Flubot. It's only side-loaded devices. Um, but for the BlackBerry one, it's, it's affecting operating systems between uh, products manufactured between 1996 to 2012 and QNX for safely manufactured until 2018. So what is BlackBerry QNX? It's one of the world's largest operating systems that you've never heard of, but effectively runs apparently within 195 million different vehicles out there kind of on the roads and all of the large car manufacturers use it. Um, outside of that, it's very popular in terms of the medical imaging device. So it's kind of like the operating system which runs on a lot of industrial control systems and stuff. I kind of akin this to, um, if we remember, everyone remembers like the AMD or things like the Intel chipset kind of breaches and where it was at a very high level up in terms of the chain. This kind of feels like the same thing where it's this piece of OEM um, uh, operating system, which is just everywhere out there. And apparently there's some quite high level vulnerabilities around it. And in terms of the remediation, like I can't even begin to think how that begins because a lot of these systems are integrated and they're going to be quite proprietary too right it's it's isn't this the thing with ics and iot in general um like i love that <laughs> you know, the, the biggest operating system you've never heard of that that's so true because <laughs> uh, i think you know we think it's windows and it's it's mac and maybe ubuntu if you're one of those one of those people but um i am one of those people so anyone who's listening please don't don't take offense but you know the the point you made there, Brad, is there is literally hundreds of operating systems, and they are sitting in critical systems. You know this is, this particular OS is in medical devices, 
Um, considering that they're, in, I think, in, in the automotive industry and a few different yeah. places like that, where you know, if it goes wrong, it's not a small thing, right? Um, you know, potentially somebody's driving down the road or somebody's having a medical procedure that relies on on this operating system doing its thing. Um, and you know, this is one of hundreds, if not thousands, of these hardly known bespoke, you know, burned onto a chip operating systems that, you know, they're maybe one trick ponies or more. Um, but if you spot the vulnerabilities, especially in ones where the OS is, um, you know, it's sitting on an EPROM or something like that, it's not easy to update. Um, it's not like rolling out a patch, right? It's not a small thing to update ICS systems. So yeah, I find these ones particularly kind of scary when you do uh, discover them. It's terrifying, isn't it? And then just, mm. I'm just trying to trying to read through the alert a little bit more from the um, ACSC just to try and make sense of it. And they're kind of saying that manufacturers or products that incorporate vulnerable versions should contact the direct reseller to patch it. Um, manufacturer products who develop unique versions should contact BlackBerry to patch it. So if you think about it, even within all these different industries, there's going to be subversions of the software and subversions of it, and then years of technical debt, and then only an old version which makes this fighter jet run in this certain parallel configure i don't know but it just starts to get absolutely crazy you almost need like a set of controls which has to be connected to a network or the internet somehow around it to then help prevent this type of stuff from ever leaving and what we're talking about here is remote code execution which could basically mean escalation of privileges complete control of whatever that device was um, and greater ability to to be victim to denial of service attacks so if we think about critical infrastructure um, within a hospital, as an example, that could have life-threatening impacts on, on patients. So I think it's a big wake-up call and, and also I think something which everybody knew was going to happen at some point and it's probably going to continue to happen. Um, there's so many different versions out there and it seems like the, I think the running theme is it's, it's vendors and it's service providers who, who are now the targets uh, because once you get access to them, you get access to all their customers. So as a consumer of one of those uh, cars that uh, is, is affected here, um, do I need to do anything or can I trust that my manufacturer is going to uh, get the patch and uh, take care of it for me? Guess watch out for your uh, local manufacturer um, kind of advice. I mean, if you're driving a Tesla or something with uh, self-driving capabilities, I'd be a little bit more worried. Apparently there's a story going around that um, Teslas are crashing into emergency vehicles there sure if that one's real or not but um yeah i'd say just watch out for the any kind of alerts from your car manufacturer and um if you need to go and get your patch on your toyota or your ford whatever it is then go get your car patched starts to feel like uh the product recalls that some car manufacturers have had to do over the years mm. because of you know physical defects in i don't know airbags or you know the, th mm. the thing that connects the steering wheel to the other thing i don't know which about cars but you know yeah they, they get recalled all the time and it, maybe it's it starts to be that you know, that you discover a, a problem that could be very significant in something like this, especially with the, I mean, I think you've just said it, the, the internet connected cars, which you're seeing more and more of where they've got a SIM in the car when you buy it and that you don't have to go and sign up for. It's just, it's used as a way to uh, deliver, you know, downloads, updates to the, the operating system and the ECU in the cars. Mm -hmm. But, you know, does it get to that point where it is a recall? You got to go drive to your um, your particular brands and they, they stick a plug in and they do some stuff and away you go. I think we'll see all the car companies will follow the Tesla model, right? Where you do get that chip in your, that SIM in your car, but you also then pay, I think, 10 grand a year, right? Like this is a recurring subscription to get updates and the self-driving. And then that kind of takes care of the maintenance aspect as well. So maybe 
that's the security aspect as well. It's like that's part of the constant patching and updates to the software. It's protecting against this layer. So maybe, unfortunately, we're all going to get to the point where we're having to pay $10,000 a year to uh, keep our car on the road. <laughs> Cars as a service. We've arrived, everybody. Yeah. Yes. You don't you don't get to own your car. You just get to yeah subscribe to your your chosen brand. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you get a new one every six months then. Would that even be so bad, right? Like, well, it's so many implications, right? But um, I will definitely be keeping a, an eye out for uh, for a software uh, upgrade and and see and and if I get one, um, I certainly will, will know why this time as well as to actually what's happening. So hopefully, uh, it can get taken care of. But it's yeah, it's interesting that it's obviously you know on a large scale um in order to get the attention of the ACSC and be able to put out that alert um to make the industry aware of uh of of that vulnerability um and what needs to be done to hopefully help protect everyone. That draws to a close today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. In terms of looking forward to next week, uh, we have a, a great interview on, on a real human interest story of how it can, how cyber crime can actually impact a person individually and, and what it means to them. Tell us more about next week's guest. Yeah, we're joined by Laura Jeffrey. Um, who is a, 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 a has, has been really kind to us. She actually provided some um, videos for the Oster talk I did with uh, Amy Holden a couple of months back, where you know it, it sort of made it real. Uh, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time, right on this show in the industry, um, business email compromise uh, specifically. But Laura has. She's got a first of all a great uh, a great story, and by that I don't mean it's a good story. I mean it's a horrible story, but mm. it's well told. Um, and for me, it made very real the human experience of what it's like to be um, on the the receiving end or to be a victim of a fairly large business email well business email compromise slash fraud um, attack. So we go through that in, in some amount of detail. And and what I loved about the episode is that Laura fills in a lot of the blanks that I had about how it's like how is it to navigate the legal system and you know what's the human frustrations that come along with trying to uh, you know at a personal level remediate this stuff get your money back and seek justice um, so it's quite a yeah funny to say about a cyber security or cyber resilience podcast but it's actually quite an emotional episode it's a really it's a human human story it's 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 really great yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing that and, and, like you say, those real-world impacts that uh, mm. can happen to any of us. So uh, thanks for that. Thanks all for listening. Um, until next week, stay safe. Bye.